Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hello, hello. Welcome back to OMD Daily. Today is May 20th, 2020. Um, so, how should I start off today? Well, don't be disappointed, but there, I'm a little behind schedule. So I wanted to, I think I promised a full kind of company analysis uh probably for today i think that's i might have promised that a couple episodes ago but lo and behold much of my day was actually spent working on a case study for a job interview process for a fintech company so please forgive me that took longer than i expected um so that delayed any ability to focus in on my research report writing but that did not deter me from trying to learn new stuff every day and in one ways procrastinate further on my report writing by watching more interviews and reading more news on various companies and interesting people. So a couple things I'll share. Um, one thing that was super exciting was learning about uh, Constellation's recent acquisition. I think it was officially announced today i want to say um yeah i think it was today where constellation uh, constellation software sorry its ticker is csu and disclaimer this is not investment advice i think i have to say that i just hear everyone else saying it so i'll just say it every time but yeah so constellation software is buying i think you pronounce it topicus it's i believe a software company uh, in the Netherlands and it's going to practically merge with one of their operating groups the TSS operating group and what's super exciting about this deal is that it'll probably become its first spin-off I think in the previous I think episode three uh, previous episode I talked about the various learnings I had from the Constellation software annual meeting and one of the really exciting parts was the opportunity for spin-offs and how Constellation will explore areas where they'll spin off various parts of its you know, operating entities into separate public companies and so that they can realize their value further. And so I'm just super excited to hear about this. And apparently the CFO kind of publicly confirmed that the spin-off company will probably be on the Toronto Stock Exchange. So then that's even better. I can buy it with my pretty... Uh, unfortunate Canadian currency. I think I'd. I really wish <laughs> I was. All, all my money was in USDs because you know it's just so much better to have the reserve currency than a currency that seems to be denominated by oil, just based on market standards. So it's kind of unfortunate in recent market times. But what are you gonna do? Still, it's really exciting that Constellation Software is gonna have its first spinoff, hopefully by. Um, I think the acquisition is supposed to all kind of close by end of 2020. Um, I don't know if that's, if that's when the spinoff will happen, but we know it is going to happen. So I'm really excited about that and hope to see more 
of the exciting spinoffs happen uh, in the future. And so that was the first kind of exciting learning. The second one's kind of more on the painful side. I recently learned about how Joe Rogan, I'm going to type this up actually because I haven't really read the full article, but that Joe Rogan's podcast is exclusive on Spotify and I'm super happy for Joe. But what that did is it kind of fucked me because (laughs) I think I talked about um, doing the initial analysis on Spotify last week. And well, I think back... When, when I was first um, doing the analysis, the stock price was somewhere around 140, I want to say. Um, actually, it might have been on like the 150 area. Well, now it's 190. And so <laughs> it's just, uh, it's one of those heartbreak moments. I just, I just could not have predicted that Spotify would sign up Joe Rogan and this would just pump up the stock price just to all-time highs you know just what what are you gonna do you just cannot predict this from happening although podcasting was going to be a bigger part of my thesis and it's kind of one of those sitting on your ass moments where you're just like oh no i'm gonna do an investment report and you know i want to analyze this company further before i make an investment decision and so yeah like i don't own the stock at the moment but this is kind of putting a wrench into my plans and kind of a little upsetting that I kind of missed this initial pop, but you know, the game is long. Who knows? Maybe we'll see a correction. That's not hinting at anything, but yeah, the, the whole kind of Joe Rogan exclusivity deal with Spotify was pretty interesting. Um, I think that means that all his content's no longer going to be on like YouTube, I think, and uh, Apple podcast, correct me if I'm wrong. But that seems to be the case. That's like the whole point of the deal. Um, Which is, once again, I think it's kind of going on this similar trend where I just feel like Apple and Google are kind of slipping um, in how they like kind of build the ecosystem. At least Apple. I think YouTube is kind of its own beast. But Apple seems to have just neglected its creator uh, ecosystem in some form or fashion. At least my experience of podcasting is reflective of that. Like you go through the whole kind of podcast system with Apple and you just feel like you're in this archaic um, infrastructure that shouldn't be reflective of what is considered one of the most valuable companies in the world. Whereas my experience of Spotify is just seamless and it's just not much of a headache like it is with working with Apple. And this is pretty similar with Google too. Google's experience with podcasting is actually also pretty, I'd say, confusing. And they just have too much kind of junk everywhere. That's just my experience. Um, but yeah, that was just kind of a bit of a heartbreak moment. It's just one of those things where it's it's kind of an act of omission where like, I had a thesis in the company that I felt was pretty unique. I was telling my friends about it got down to digging more into it, started to report on it, and this happens, and it's just a little bit of a bummer, but what are you going to do? It's just how the game is played. Um, but yeah. Uh, this fucking sucks. I was, I was so upset, I had to call um, I had to call my girlfriend, because she's over at her parents' place, but I had to call her and just tell her, God, this is so upsetting. <laughs> And now I'm just ranting about it here because that's just how upset I am. 
God. Anywho, uh, some other learnings. Um, this is kind of on the retail side of things. Um, so I ran in, so there's a local coffee shop chain near my place and they're a pretty popular chain in the downtown Toronto core. Uh, the founder actually came on the original podcast accounted for. Um, the coffee shop chain is called Moss Moss. And so I ran, ran into the, uh, co-owner again um and i was just talking to him just briefly at a safe social distance where i was just curious about the whole kind of business on his front and what is what his experience has been like because you know he i think he's had the moss moss coffee franchise i think they had something like six locations and it all practically shut down um but he told me he hasn't had to actually permanently close any of his locations yet so that's really that was a really good sign and i think he said he reopened two or three locations and they've each been open for about three weeks or so i think um that was pretty surprising news i didn't know that they were open for that long and most this most of it was all takeout um but what was surprising was that he's 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 seen a huge influx of people ordering coffee via uber eats that was very surprising. And he was really surprised too. He didn't think it would work because everyone was kind of, I guess, skeptical as well, where it's the idea of coffee that's delivered. Like, isn't it going to get cold in 30 minutes? And so apparently they don't do espresso drinks because the temperature will become too cold. But they've, at least his company's found a way to control the temperature of the beverage so that you can brew it at a certain temperature level in store and 30 minutes later, it'll be at the optimal drinking temperature. And I I thought that was pretty smart. And so, yeah, he's been telling me how his coffee sales has has been really getting pumped up because of Uber Eats and how, um, I guess, kind of rolling with times and pivoting and taking, embracing this whole kind of app delivery uh, ecosystem has done wonders for his coffee chain. So, yeah, that he said that's kind of how it's been working and he's also talked told me about how some of his friends in the restaurant business who haven't embraced um uber eats and other kind of delivery companies as partners haven't been doing so well and they've either kind of closed down or had to slowly try to pivot uh by kind of experiencing the mistake firsthand but overall i thought that was pretty fascinating i asked him about just the the concept of rent you know how how are his landlords and we didn't talk too in depth into it, um, like no details were really shared, but overall it seems that everything's kind of on a case by case basis. And it, he said there are times when sometimes it can get a little difficult with certain landlords over others. And so it doesn't seem to be um, smooth sailing to say the least, which is kind of what you expect, but um, it's kind of, it it seems more real when you know you know a guy who's actually in the business and he's experiencing it and he's telling you yeah like different landlords are of different size like the bigger ones might be more uh apparently like the bigger landlords are more lenient than the smaller ones who are kind of completely more reliant on um you know the business of all the individual tenants compared to like i guess if i were to pick an example like i'm sure like a big boy like brookfield isn't going to care as much about a small coffee shop compared to a little one that only has one building, for example. But that got me curious. And so I read another um, a Financial Post article about this the whole kind of restaurant scene in Toronto. 
and the CEO of Oliver and is it Oliver and Bonacini's uh, O&B. They're, if you don't know, they're a pretty popular um, restaurant chain in Toronto mainly. I think, but I think they have locations in other parts of Canada as well, um, and they have various brands under the O&B, um, I guess, food group, <laughs> the company group. And one thing that kind of stuck out from the overall uh, interview that I kind of glossed over was how apparently landlords are making uh, tenants sign NDAs uh, before they even go into lease negotiation talks because everything's happening in such a case-by-case basis that they don't want any kind of precedence to be set. And so no one can talk about what they're doing with their landlords. And so that kind of, I think, told me why my friend who runs a coffee shop wasn't t- sharing any details with me. I think maybe they, he signed an NDA as well because apparently that's kind of becoming commonplace where everyone's trying to find, like, we're trying to grapple with um, delaying rent payments, etc. Like ONB hasn't apparently paid any of their rent for any of the restaurants for March and April. Um, and in the point in terms of renegotiations, they're having to sign individual NDAs with various um, landlords which I found to be quite interesting. Um, it's good to get a little, little bit of a pulse of what's happening around because when I walk outside in Toronto, it, everyone makes it seem like nothing's wrong and everything. it just feels like everything's back to normal. Just when I see people walking around, um, no masks, just no social distancing, <laughs> it's crowded streets. I see the highway uh, from my window and it's just... It's clogged up at 5 p.m., like normal rush hour time. So it just seems like things aren't really connecting with me, at least on the COVID side and just how it's impacting the overall economy. Um, something else that I dove into today, well, I, I think a good chunk of the day was actually spent um, listening to a lot of different interviews, a lot of different podcast episodes. Um, part of the case that it required me to be creative, and so I ended up taking a couple of walks to get my creativity juices flowing. And the interview that kind of stood out for me was a three-part series with Lee Lu, the chairman of Himalaya Fund or Himalaya Capital. And also he is the only investment manager that Charlie Munger has ever invested money into. And he's, you know, practically one of the value investing legends, um, modern day legends that, and there aren't that many interviews that say of him. And so anytime I can find something where he talks, that's pretty awesome. So this was a three-part interview that he gave, or lecture that he gave in 2013. It's not long, it's like a 30-minute clip. But a few things that I took away from it, one was that he actually made an investment in the company at a 90% margin of safety. Um, It was like a Russian oil company. And the reason, or it might have been a 70 to 80% margin of safety, something like that. But on the topic of margin of safety, he talked about how, yeah, like he wasn't familiar with Russia. He wasn't familiar with the business landscape there. Like he just did, he felt like his circle of competence there was weaker than in other areas like China or maybe even South Korea because he's made a lot of investments there as well. Um, and so he said that was kind of one of the requirements where he needed a really high margin of safety. And obviously someone in the audience, when when you hear that, oh yeah, like, you know, you want to look for like a, at least like a 70% margin of safety. The audience member, um, when they're especially based in the U.S., would say, 
well, that's nice. That's a nice to have, but is that kind of reasonable? And I think that's where Lilu kind of shined light on what I found to be, it was pretty amazing to hear him talk about the power of businesses that can reinvest their capital um, and just rapidly grow and compound over time. Like I think the term compounders and investing in these kind of businesses are becoming more commonplace now um, in the investing community. But I don't imagine, I don't think it was as common uh, back when Li Lu started. And his message has been relatively consistent. Like even when I watch his interviews from even earlier than 2013, like I think he gave a lecture at Columbia Business School um, much earlier than that. I, I'm kind of blanking on the year, but it was much earlier than 2013, I got to say. And even, even then, like it, his message seems to be just continuously very clear. Like it's like he kind of figured out pretty early that, oh yeah, you want to invest in businesses that can reinvest their capital over a long period of time. And this is where he told the questioner that, yeah, like these kind of companies will not look cheap. They won't look cheap. Um, and the margin of safety isn't entirely just supposed to be in the valuation. The margin of safety is also supposed to, it can also be part of the business itself. So if you have a high quality business and the durability of it becomes your margin of safety. It's it's similar to what, you know, Chuck Acre and Tom Russo talk about as well, where the business's ability to be resilient, to be durable, sometimes even anti-fragile, becomes part of the margin of safety of the company. And traditional value investors will only look at the valuation side as the source of margin of safety. But you, for a quality company, it's about looking at both the valuation as well as the company itself where does the moat provide durability that allows a kind of margin of safety to exist. And so I found that um, answer to the question of, yeah, like how, what, if we, what if we can't find 70% margins of safety? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I found that to be pretty, a pretty, uh, pretty interesting interview. I think overall... It's it's just nice to listen to Lilu talk. I find he's very transparent. Um, and I just enjoy his style of investing, which is you know always, even on like the topic of diversification, that, yeah, like, he diversifies. Um, although he's known to be a pretty concentrated investor, he still believes that, yeah, like, there's still a chance that you'll be wrong. You don't know what ch- that chance is, but you you know you can be wrong, so that's why you diversify. But... When that opportunity comes, when you've done all this work and that opportunity comes where it's this no-brainer investment, then you have to know to bet big. And you, you, I've heard him say this before intermittently throughout the past interviews where, you know, it's just the idea that you, also Stan Drunkenmiller said this too, but you have to know when to bet big, but you will only know that after you've done enough of the work you have and that's what Lilu continuously talks about um in the interview in various ways of answering similar questions where you have to really study a lot of the great businesses of the past and he constantly kind of tells people like that's kind of a great way to get started where study like the companies that are amazing and try to dissect that and so when an opportunity comes you can kind of understand a similar theme 
that might come out. And I think that's kind of what he's getting at, although he didn't really say it directly. So that might also be kind of be why it's really valuable to also read business biographies and case studies of amazing companies of the past, just so you, you become aware that when you see something, it kind of clicks with it becomes, you can kind of fit into a similar framework of sorts. Um, but yeah, so that was a really cool interview. It's just really fun, entertaining, um, something I definitely recommend other people to listen to as well. And yeah, that was kind. Of, that was practically most of the day. Um, I still did the usual reading, um, an hour a day as well. Um, honestly, the book "Why We Sleep" has been amazing. There's, I just feel like the reason I can't progress as quickly is because I'm just writing out so many things and just highlighting things, and it kind of inspires other thoughts as well. So, that's something that. I'm really happy about like I look forward to it every morning when I wake up I just can't wait to read for an hour and it's kind of getting that guilty pleasure out of the way first and yeah there's definitely a lot of learnings that come out of there but I'm just gonna hold off on that um, for the moment just because I want to compile everything into part of a book review after I'm done and then I'll share it but if I were to share one thing I think a key learning I had today from the book was that alcohol ex- reduces REM sleep significantly and REM sleep is required for you to you know become more creative and it, it kind of inspires you because REM sleep has this very important function where it practically refines all the learnings that you've had throughout the day and so if you have a very short amount of REM sleep then that will kind of impact your ability to compound your knowledge and create this lattice work of mental models in your mind so that's why REM sleep is important and alcohol can completely stunts it yes so that's i think that's kind of ingrained in my mind as kind of confirming why i really shouldn't be drinking any alcohol but yeah that's something i'll share um and so that's it for the day i hope this was easy fun to digest and somewhat valuable to you i hope and i will see you again tomorrow take care